that God has ordained for families truly take shape and bless all the generations after you. To young men, recognizing the role you will have as provider and protector, we say prepare now by being diligent in school and planning for post-secondary training. Education, whether in a university, technical school, apprenticeship, or similar program, is key to developing the skills and capabilities you will need. Take advantage of opportunities to associate with people of all ages, including children, and learn how to establish healthy and rewarding relationships. That uh, typically means talking face-to-face with people and sometimes doing things together not just perfecting your texting skills. (laughs) Live your life so that, as a man, you will bring purity to your marriage and to your children. To all the rising generation, we say, wherever you rank your own father on the scale of good, better, best, and I predict that ranking will go higher as you grow older and wiser, (laughs) Make up your mind to honor him and your mother by your own life. Remember the yearning hope of a father as expressed by John. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Your righteousness is the greatest honor any father can receive. To my brethren, the fathers in this Church, I say, I know you wish you were a more perfect father. I know I wish I were. Even so, despite our limitations, let us press on. Let us lay aside the exaggerated notions of individualism and autonomy of today's culture and think first of the happiness and well-being of others. Surely, despite our inadequacies, our Heavenly Father will magnify us and cause our simple efforts to bear fruit. I am encouraged by a story that appeared in the New Era some years ago. The author recounted the following. When I was young, our little family lived in a one-bedroom apartment on the second floor. I slept on the couch in the living room. My dad, a steelworker, left home very early for work each day. Every morning he would tuck the covers around me and stop for a minute. I would be half-dreaming when I could sense my dad standing beside the couch looking at me. As I slowly awoke, I became embarrassed to have him there. I tried to pretend I was still asleep. I became aware that as he stood beside my bed, he was praying with all his attention, energy, and focus for me. Each morning, my dad prayed for me. He prayed that I would have a good day, that I would be safe, that I would learn and prepare for the future. And since he could not be with me until evening, he prayed for the teachers and my friends that I would be with that day. At first, I didn't really understand what my dad was doing those mornings when he prayed for me. But as I got older, I came to sense his love and interest in me and everything I was doing. It is one of my favorite memories. It wasn't until years later, after I had married had children of my own and would go into their rooms while they were asleep and pray for them, that I understood completely how my father felt about me. Alma testified to his son, Behold, I say unto you that it is Christ that surely shall come. Yea, he cometh to declare glad tidings of salvation unto his people. And now, my son, 
This was the ministry unto which ye were called, to declare these glad tidings unto this people, to prepare their minds, or rather, that they may prepare the minds of their children to hear the word at the time of his coming. That is the ministry of fathers today. God bless and make them equal to it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. The rolling forth of the Lord's plan of salvation during this dispensation of the fullness of times is almost beyond comprehension. This is exemplified by President Thomas S. Monson's announcement of four new temples in this conference session. As President Monson mentioned, when he was called as an apostle in 1963, there were 12 operating temples in the world. With the dedication of the Provo City Temple, there are now 150, and there will be 177 when all announced temples are dedicated. This is cause for us to humbly rejoice. 180 years ago, on this very day, April 3, in 1836, a magnificent vision was opened to the Prophet Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in the Kirtland Temple. This occurred just one week after the dedication of that temple. In this vision, they saw the Lord standing upon the breastwork of the pulpit in the temple. Among other things, the Savior declared, Let the hearts of all my people rejoice, who have with their might built this house to my name. For behold, I have accepted this house, and my name shall be here and I will manifest myself to my people in mercy in this house. On that sacred occasion, ancient prophets appeared, including Elijah, who bestowed the keys essential for temple ordinances. We have some sense of the rejoicing that is going on in Quito, Ecuador, Harare, Zimbabwe, Belém, Brazil, and Lima, Peru, both with members and missionaries, based on what happened in Bangkok, Thailand a year ago when that temple was announced. Sister Shelley Sr., wife of the then Thailand Mission President David Sr., emailed family and friends to say that after listening to President Monson announce that the temple there, there had been twelve sleepless hours and lots of tears of happiness. They called their mission assistants at 11.30 p.m. and informed them. The assistants called all the missionaries. The report came back that the whole mission was awake in the middle of the night, jumping on their beds. <laughs> Sister Senior humorously admonished family and friends, please don't tell the missionary department. <laughs> the deep spiritual response of the members in Thailand was equally strong. I am confident. There have been spiritual preparations in hearts and homes and manifestations from heaven preparing the saints where these newly announced temples will be located. Sister Senior in Thailand had some special hand mirrors made for her personal instruction, especially with sisters. There was a temple etched in the mirror with the wording, See Yourself in the Temple. As people gazed into the mirror, 
they saw themselves in the temple. The seniors taught the investigators and members to picture themselves in the temple and make the necessary lifestyle changes and spiritual preparations to meet this goal. My challenge this morning is for each of us, wherever we live, to see ourselves in the temple. President Monson has stated, Until you have entered the house of the Lord and have received all the blessings which await you there, you have not obtained everything the Church has to offer. The all-important and crowning blessings of membership in the Church are those blessings which we receive in the temples of God." Despite the lack of righteousness in the world today, we live in a sacred, holy time. Prophets with loving and longing hearts have described our day for centuries. The prophet Joseph Smith, citing both Obadiah in the Old Testament and 1 Peter in the New Testament, acknowledged the great purpose of God in providing baptism for the dead and allowing us to be saviors on Mount Zion. The Lord has prospered our people and provided the resources and prophetic guidance so we can be valiant in attending to our temple responsibilities for both the living and the dead. Because of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, we understand the purpose of life, the Father's plan of salvation for His children, the Savior's redemptive sacrifice, and the central role of families in the organization of heaven. The combination of increased numbers of temples and advanced technology to fulfill our sacred family history responsibilities for our ancestors makes this the most blessed time in all history. I rejoice in the extraordinary faithfulness of our youth in indexing and finding their ancestors and then doing the baptism and confirmation work in the temple. You are literally among the prophesied saviors on Mount Zion. How do we prepare for the temple? We know that righteousness and sanctification are essential parts of preparing for the temple. In Doctrine and Covenants section 97 it reads, And inasmuch as my people build a house unto me in the name of the Lord, and do not suffer any unclean thing to come into it, that it be not defiled, my glory shall rest upon it. Until 1891, the President of the Church signed each temple recommend to protect the sanctity of the temple. That responsibility was then delegated to bishops and stake presidents. It is our great desire that members of the Church will live to be worthy of a temple recommend. Please don't see the temple as some distant and perhaps unachievable goal. Working with their bishop, members can achieve all righteous requirements in a relatively short period of time if they have a determination to qualify and fully repent of transgressions. This includes being willing to forgive ourselves and not focus on our imperfections or sins as disqualifying us from ever entering a sacred temple. The Savior's Atonement was accomplished for all of God's children. His redeeming sacrifice satisfies the demands of justice for all those who truly repent. The scriptures describe this in a most beautiful fashion. 
Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and I will remember them no more. We assure you that living righteous principles will bring you and your family happiness, fulfillment, and peace. Members, both adults and youth, self-certify their worthiness when they answer the Temple Recommend questions. The essential requirement is to increase our testimony of God the Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the restoration of His gospel, and experience the ministering of the Holy Ghost. The blessings of the Temple are numerous. The primary blessings of the Temple are the ordinances of exaltation. The gospel plan is about exaltation and encompasses making and keeping sacred covenants with God. Except for baptism and confirmation, these ordinances and covenants are performed and received in the temple for the living. For the dead, all the saving ordinances and covenants are received in the temple. Brigham Young taught, There is not one thing that the Lord could do for the salvation of the human family that He has neglected to do and that can all be accomplished for their salvation independent of them has been accomplished in and by the Savior. Church leaders organize stakes, wards, quorums, church auxiliaries, missions, etc. in our chapels and other buildings. The Lord organizes eternal families only in temples. It is clear those with broken hearts and contrite spirits who have truly repented of their sins are completely acceptable to the Lord in His holy house. We know God is no respecter of persons. One of the precious things I love about the temple is that among those who attend there are no distinctions of wealth, rank, or position of any kind. We are all equal before God. Everyone is dressed in white to signify we are a pure and righteous people. All sit side by side with the desire in their hearts to be worthy sons and daughters of a loving Heavenly Father. Just think, across the entire world, women and men can, through sacred ordinances and covenants available in holy temples, return to the presence of God and be united eternally. They do this in a beautiful sacred ceiling room available to all temple-worthy members. After they enter into this, these covenants, they can see themselves in the temple mirrors that face each other. Together, the temple mirrors reflect back and forth images that stretch seemingly into eternity. These reflected images help us contemplate parents, grandparents, and all previous generations. They help us recognize the sacred covenants that connect us to all generations that follow. This is incredibly significant, and it, stand, and it starts when you see yourself in the temple. President Howard W. Hunter counseled us to consider the majestic teachings in the great dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple a prayer the Prophet Joseph Smith said was given to him by revelation. It is a prayer that continues to be answered upon us individually, upon us as families, and upon us as a people because of the priesthood power the Lord has given us to use in His holy temples. We would do well to study the 109th section of the Doctrine and Covenants and to follow President Hunter's admonition 
to establish the temple of the Lord as the great symbol of our membership. The temple is also a place of refuge, thanksgiving, instruction, understanding, and in all things pertaining to the kingdom of God on the earth. Throughout my life, it has been a place of tranquility and peace in a world that is literally in commotion. It is wonderful to leave the cares of the world behind in that sacred setting. Often in the temple, as we engage in family history research, we feel promptings and have impressions from the Holy Ghost. Occasionally in the temple, the veil between us and those on the other side becomes very thin. We get additional assistance in our efforts to be saviors on Mount Zion. Several years ago in a temple in Central America, the wife of one of our now emeritus general authorities assisted a father, mother, and their children in receiving eternal covenants in the ceiling room where the temple mirrors are located. As they concluded and faced those mirrors, she noticed that there was a face in the mirror that was not in the room. She inquired of the mother and learned that a daughter had passed away and accordingly was not physically present. The deceased daughter was then included by proxy in the sacred ordinance. Never underestimate the assistance provided in temples from the other side of the veil. Please know how earnestly we desire that everyone make any necessary changes to qualify for the temple. Prayerfully review where you are in your life, seek the guidance of the Spirit, and talk to your bishop about preparing yourself for the temple. President Thomas S. Monson has said, There is no more important goal for you to work toward than being worthy to go to the temple. I was privileged to participate with President Henry B. Eyring at the rededication of the Suva Fiji Temple two months ago. It was a special, sacred occasion. President Eyring's courage and strong spiritual impressions allowed the rededication to proceed in the face of the worst cyclone ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere. Physical and spiritual protections were provided to youth, missionaries, and members. The hand of the Lord was clearly evident. The Fiji Suva Temple was that rededication was a refuge from the storm. Often, as we experience the storms of life, we witness the Lord's hand in providing eternal protections. The original dedication of the Fiji Suva Temple on June 18, 2000, was also remarkable. As the temple neared completion, members of Parliament were taken hostage by a group of rebels. Downtown, downtown Suva, Fiji, was looted and burned. The military declared martial law. As the area presidency, I went with the four stake presidents in Fiji and met the military leaders at the Queen Elizabeth barracks. After we explained the proposed dedication, they were supportive but concerned about the safety of President Gordon B. Hinckley. They recommended a small dedication with no events outside the temple like the cornerstone ceremony. They emphasized anyone outside the temple could be a potential target for violence. President Hinckley approved one small dedicatory session with just the new temple presidency and a few local leaders. No others were invited because of the danger. However, he emphatically stated, if we do dedicate the temple, we will have the cornerstone ceremony because Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, and this is His Church. When we actually went outside for the cornerstone ceremony, there were no non-members, children, media, or others present, but a faithful prophet demonstrated his courageous and unwavering commitment to the Savior. 
Later, President Hinckley, speaking to the Savior, said, There is none to equal him. There never has been. There never will be. Thanks be to God for the gift of his beloved Son, who gave his life that we might live, and who is the chief immovable cornerstone of our faith and his Church." Brothers and sisters, I pray that each of us will honor the Savior and make any necessary changes to see ourselves in his sacred temples. In doing so, we can accomplish his holy purposes and prepare ourselves and our families for all the blessings the Lord and His Church can bestow in this life and eternity. I bear my sure witness that the Savior lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
We are grateful to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir for the beautiful music they have provided this morning. Our concluding speaker for this session will be President Dieter F. Uchtdorf, Second Counselor in the First Presidency. Following his remarks, the choir will close this meeting by singing, O Thou Rock of Our Salvation. The benediction will then be offered by Sister Carol F. McConkie, First Counselor in the Young Women General Presidency. President Uchtdorf. Thank you, President Monson, for these wonderful temples again. What a blessing for the Church, what a blessing for the membership, what a blessing for these nations which receive those wonderful temples. My dear brothers and sisters, one of my haunting childhood memories begins with the howl of distant air raid sirens that awakened me from sleep. Before long, another sound, the rattle and hum of propellers, gradually increases until it shakes the very air. Trained well by our mother, we children each grab our bag and run up the hill to a bomb shelter. As we hurry through the pitch-dark night, green and white flares drop from the sky to mark the targets for the bombers. Strangely enough, Everyone calls these flares Christmas trees. I'm four years old, and I'm a witness to a world at war. Not far from where my family lived was the city of Dresden. Those who lived there witnessed more than a thousand times what I had seen. Massive firestorms caused by thousands of tons of explosives swept through Dresden, destroying more than 90% of the city and leaving little but rubble and ash in their wake. In a very short time, the city once nicknamed the Jewel Box was no more. Erich Kessner, a German author, wrote of the destruction, In a thousand years was her beauty built, in one night was it utterly destroyed. During my childhood, I could not imagine how the destruction of a war our own people had started could ever be overcome. The world around us appeared totally hopeless and without any future. Last year, I had the opportunity to return to Dresden, 70 years after the war it is once again a jewel box of a city. The ruins have been cleared and the city is restored, even improved. During my visit, I saw the beautiful Lutheran church, Frauenkirche, the Church of Our Lady, originally built in the 1700s. It had been one of Dresden's shining jewels, but the war reduced it to a pile of rubble. For many years it remained that way, until finally it was determined that the Frauenkirche would be rebuilt. Stones from the destroyed church had been stored and catalogued, 
and when possible were used in the reconstruction. Today you can see these fire blackened stones pockmarking the outer walls. These scars are not only a reminder of the war history of this building, but also a monument to hope, a magnificent symbol of man's ability to create new life from ashes. As I pondered the history of Dresden and marveled at the ingenuity and resolve of those who restored what had been so completely destroyed, I felt the sweet influence of the Holy Spirit. Surely, I thought, if man can take the ruins, rubble, and remains of a broken city and rebuild an awe-inspiring structure that rises toward the heavens, how much more capable is our Almighty Father to restore His children who have fallen, struggled, or become lost. It matters not how completely ruined our lives may seem. It matters not how scarlet our sins, how deep our bitterness, how lonely, abandoned, or broken our hearts may be. Even those who are without hope, who live in despair, who have betrayed trust, surrendered their integrity, or turned away from God, can be rebuilt. Save those rare sons of perdition, there is no life so shattered that it cannot be restored. The joyous news of the gospel is this. Because of the eternal plan of happiness provided by our loving Heavenly Father, and through the infinite sacrifice of Jesus the Christ, we can not only be redeemed from our fallen state and restored to purity, we can also transcend mortal imagination and become heirs of eternal life and partakers of God's indescribable glory. During the Savior's ministry, the religious leaders of his day disapproved of Jesus spending time with people they had labeled sinners. Perhaps to them it looked like he was tolerating or even condoning sinful behavior. Perhaps they believed that the best way to help sinners repent was by condemning by ridiculing and shaming them. When the Savior perceived what the Pharisees and scribes were thinking, he told a story. What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he laid it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Over the centuries, this parable has traditionally been interpreted as a call to action for us to bring back the lost sheep and to reach out to those who are lost. 
While this is certainly appropriate and good, I wonder if there is more to it. Is it possible that Jesus' purpose, first and foremost, was to teach about the work of the Good Shepherd? Is it possible that he was testifying of God's love for his wayward children? Is it possible that the Savior's message was that God is fully aware of those who are lost and that he will find them? that he will reach out to them, and that he will rescue them. If that is so, what must the sheep do to qualify for this divine help? Does the sheep need to know how to use a complicated sextant to calculate its coordinates? Does it need to be able to use a GPS to define its position? Does it have to have the expertise to create an app that will call for help? Does the sheep need endorsement by a sponsor before the Good Shepherd will come to the rescue? No, certainly not. The sheep is worthy of divine rescue simply because it is loved by the Good Shepherd. To me, the parable of the lost sheep is one of the most hopeful passages in all of Scripture. Our Savior, the Good Shepherd, knows and loves us. He knows and loves you. He knows when you're lost, and He knows where you are. He knows your grief, your silent pleadings, your fears, your tears. It matters not how you became lost, whether because of your own poor choices or because of circumstances beyond your own control. What matters is that you are his child, and he loves you. He loves his children. Because he loves you, he will find you. He will place you upon his shoulders rejoicing. And when he brings you home, he will say to one and all, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. But you might be thinking, what is the catch? Surely I have to do more than simply wait to be rescued. While our loving Father desires that all of his children return to him, he will force no one to heaven. God will not rescue us against our will. So what must we do? His invitation is simple. Turn to me. Come unto me. Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. This is how we show him that we want to be rescued. It requires a little faith, but do not despair. If you cannot muster faith right now, begin with hope. If you cannot say you know God is there, you can hope that he is. You can desire to believe. That is enough to start. Then, acting on that hope, reach out to Heavenly Father. God will extend his love toward you, and his work of rescue and transformation will begin. Over time, you will recognize his hand in your life. You will feel his love. 
and the desire to walk in His light and follow His way will grow with every step of faith you take. We call these steps of faith obedience. That is not a popular word these days. But obedience is a cherished concept in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we know that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. As we increase in faith, we must also increase in faithfulness. Earlier I quoted a German author who lamented the destruction of Dresden. He also penned the phrase, Es gibt nichts Gutes außer man tut es. For those of you who do not speak the celestial language, This is uh, translated as, there's nothing good unless you do it. You and I may speak most eloquently of spiritual things. We may impress people with our keen intellectual interpretation of religious topics. We may rhapsodize about religion and dream of our mansion above. But if our faith does not change the way we live. If our beliefs do not influence our daily decisions, our religion is vain, and our faith, if not dead, is certainly not well and is in danger of eventually flatlining. Obedience is the lifeblood of faith. It is by obedience that we gather light into our souls. But sometimes I think we misunderstand obedience. We may see obedience as an end in itself rather than a means to an end. Or we may pound the metaphorical hammer of obedience against the iron anvil of the commandments in an effort to shape those we love through constant heeding and repeated battering into holier heavenly matter. No doubt about it, there are times when we need a stern call to repentance. Certainly there are some who may be reached only in this manner. But perhaps... There's a different metaphor that can explain why we obey the commandments of God. Maybe obedience is not so much the process of bending, twisting, and pounding our souls into something we are not. Instead, it is the process by which we discover what we truly are made of. We are created by Almighty God. He is our Heavenly Father. We are literally His spirit children. We are made of supernal material, most precious and highly refined. 
And thus we carry within ourselves the substance of divinity. Here on earth, however, our thoughts and actions become encumbered with that which is corrupt, unholy, and impure. The dust and filth of the world stain our souls, making it difficult to recognize and remember our birthright and purpose. But all this cannot change who we truly are. The fundamental divinity of our nature remains. And the moment we choose to incline our hearts to our beloved Savior and set foot upon the path of discipleship, something miraculous happens. The love of God fills our hearts. The light of truth fills our minds. We start to lose the desire to sin. And we do not want to walk any longer in darkness. We come to see obedience not as a punishment, but as a liberating path to our divine destiny. And gradually, the corruption, dust, and limitations of this earth begin to fall away. Eventually, the priceless, eternal spirit of the heavenly being within us is revealed and a radiance of goodness becomes our nature. My dear brothers and sisters, my dear friends, I testify that God sees us as we truly are and he sees us worthy of rescue. You may feel that your life is in ruins, you may have sinned, you may be afraid, angry, grieving, or tortured by doubt. But just as the Good Shepherd finds his lost sheep, if you will only lift up your heart to the Savior of the world, he will find you. He will rescue you. He will lift you up and place you on his shoulders. He will carry you home. If mortal hands can transform rubble and ruins into a beautiful house of worship, then we can have confidence and trust that our loving Heavenly Father can and will rebuild us. His plan is to build us into something far greater than we were, far greater than what we can ever imagine. With each step of faith on the path of discipleship, we grow into the beings of eternal glory and infinite joy we were designed to become. This is my testimony, my blessing, and my humble prayer. In the sacred name of our Master, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
Our Father in heaven, it is with gratitude that we come to the conclusion of this meeting where we have felt the Spirit of the Lord in rich abundance. We are grateful, Father, for the messages that we have received from thy chosen servants, from prophets, seers, and revelators, and most grateful, Heavenly Father, to hear from our beloved prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, whom we love and sustain with all of our hearts. Heavenly Father, we pray as we go forward from this meeting that the instruction that we have received will be in our minds and in our hearts and penetrate deeply and motivate us to act in accordance with thy mind and will, that we may be strictly obedient to the commandments which are precious to us, that we may be true and faithful and keep the covenants that we have made through those saving ordinances for which we are so humbly grateful. Heavenly Father, we praise thy name, grateful for the gift of thy beloved Son and the cleansing, healing, and enabling power of his atoning sacrifice. We say these things humbly in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This has been a broadcast of the 186th Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from the general authorities and general officers of the church. Music was provided by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. 
Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. Are you retired or nearing retirement and have money in the stock market? Market downturns could be devastating and could forever change the course of your retirement plan. Mark Howdell, Certified Financial Planner, is the retirement expert in Utah. For over 30 years, he has been helping people just like you transition their life savings from the asset accumulation phase to the asset preservation phase. Wouldn't it be comforting to know that you're guaranteed to never lose another penny due to stock market losses? Would you like to receive a guaranteed monthly income for the rest of your life and your spouse's life? Is that possible? You bet it is. Call Mark at 801-505-0599 to schedule your free financial consultation. 801-505-0599. 801-505-0599. Your consultation will change your retirement outlook and outcome. So call Mark today. 801-505-0599. Or online at retirerichtoday.com. Are you prepared for the next power outage? My husband needs oxygen 24 hours a day and depends on electricity to power his equipment. Yes. Unfortunately, I have COPD and the doctor says I need oxygen all of the time. But we didn't know how we were going to keep the oxygen flowing. I called our power company and they suggested a backup power generator. I found a company that offers the complete package. It's called the Home Run Solution by My In Power. Now we're confident that a power outage won't be an issue for our health or safety. The Home Run Solution is powered by a Furman generator connected directly to your home. Call 844-MY-IN-POWER now. That's 844-MY-IN-POWER. Visit our website, myinpower.com, and our booth at PrepperCon, April 15th and 16th. 844-MY-IN-POWER. The 186th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints will be here soon. More in a moment. When you have a child in crisis, it can be overwhelming. What to do, who to turn to for help. You're not alone, and it's not your fault. Westridge Academy offers hope through caring clinical expertise. Applied with the same love and faith-based values you strive to live in your own home. Westridge Academy is Utah's oldest and most trusted treatment facility and has helped over 25,000 families. Right now, for conference listeners, you can schedule a free expert assessment. Call Lynn or Wendy at 801-282-1000. That's 801-282-1000. There is help. Life can get better. Find out more at westridgeacademy.org. KSL's coverage of General Conference begins Saturday and Sunday morning at 9.30 with special programming for the whole family between conference sessions. Join us for General Conference on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. You're listening to the 186th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints on KSL FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City. This is the General Conference. This is, this is the General Conference report for the Sunday morning session of the 186th Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. I'm Paul Nelson. The session was conducted by Henry B. Eyring and started off with official business from President Thomas S. Monson as he announced locations for four new temples across the world Quito, Ecuador, Araya, Zimbabwe, 
Purim, Brazil, and the second temple in Lima, Peru. President Monson uh, also reminded church members about individual choices and how they can shape a person's destiny. He said, if one chooses Jesus Christ, that will lead to the celestial glory people seek. May we maintain the courage to defy the consensus. May we ever choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong. President Monson was followed by Young Women General President Bonnie L. Oscarson, who told the story of American Fork resident Michelle Carneseca, whose faith was tested as her son Ethan was flown to Primary Children's Medical Center with pneumonia. I knew it, but did I believe it? My answer came as quickly as the question popped into my head. The Spirit confirmed to my heart and mind the answer I already knew. I did believe it. Sister Oscarson asked church members, do we become so accustomed to the blessings of the church that we fail to comprehend discipleship? We believe that this church is more than just a good place to go on Sundays and learn how to be a good person. It is more than just a lovely Christian social club where we can associate with people of good moral standing. She said real answers come when we search the scriptures, not the Internet. That's a sentiment echoed by Bishop W. Christopher Waddle of the presiding bishopric, who said our ability to travel through life's road is in large part dependent on whether or not we have a hard time thinking about Jesus Christ. To assist us in our search for peace amidst the daily challenges of life, we've been given a simple pattern to keep our thoughts focused on the Savior, who said, Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit. And you shall have peace in me. I am Jesus Christ. Learn, listen, and walk. He spoke about the great and spacious building and how in Lehi's dream people partook of the fruit while others mocked. He also spoke about Alma the Younger who rebelled against the church and who said his soul was racked with all his sins until he cried out to Jesus Christ. Like Alma, we too will find peace to our soul as we walk with Jesus Christ. Repent of our sins and apply His healing power in our lives. The peace we all seek requires more than a desire. It requires us to act. Next was Elder D. Todd Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, who spoke about the importance of fathers. He cited books that showed society can be ambivalent about fatherhood, while other people are downright offended at the idea. As a church, we believe in fathers. We believe in the ideal of the man who puts his family first. We believe that by divine design, fathers are to preside over their families in love and righteousness and are responsible to provide the necessities of life and protection for their families. We believe that in their complementary family duties, fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equals.